This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Beautiful. Uh, sure, you saw a little bit of the inauguration yesterday. Thought it was great. How could you not? Just the right amount of pomp and circumstance and tradition. Not too much, not too little. It was great. It was perfect. Uh, and now today you got the uh, the goofy women's march going on. My wife asked me this morning, uh, she said, what do they mean by women's rights? I love that question. I mean, it's the same wife who I asked uh, a year and a half ago. I said, what are, I said, wife, what are the three most important issues to you? Right? This is, women's issues, right? Women's issues. What are the most important issues to you, a woman? And she said, uh, uh, economy, national security, and education. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, me too. So they're just important issues, not women's issues. They're just just issues. Same thing as with rights. There's no man's rights or women's rights, just rights. But let's be real. It's all about abortion. But, of course, the right of uh, unborn baby girls don't count. Maybe we'll chat a little more about that later. I, w- I want to add a, a little bit of perspective to the inauguration that I think is really important. I'm sure you've heard a hundred times yesterday, and I'm sure you remember it from eight years ago and, and years before that. And, and, and whenever there's an inauguration, you always hear over and over again, peaceful transfer of power. And you've heard it so many times, and we're so used to it that we've completely lost touch with how miraculous that is. But I want to tell a quick story here of the norm. Now, I'm not going to go, uh, I'm not going to make up a hypothetical. I'm, I'm not going to go way back in history. I'm going to go all the way back to Thursday in the Gambia. Well, let, let me go back to 1994 for the start of the story. So 1994, uh, there was a guy named Lieutenant Yaya Jama. Cool name, right? Yaya Jama. And he was in the Gambian National Army. The Gambia is a, a, a sliver of a country in, in West Africa. So he was a lieutenant in the army, and he led a military coup over the government. It was a very odd situation. No bloodshed. Um, the, the country was ripe for something because the, the leader who was there was there for 30 years. And for whatever reason, he said he was going to step down. So there's this big power vacuum. And this guy in the military uh, rose up and became the president. So, so Jama, Yaya Jama was the president of the Gambia in 1994. He won re-election in 2001 and then 2006 and 2011. But these are all kind of fake elections. But in December, he had another election and he lost. <laughs> Some other guy won, Adama Barra won with 45% of the vote. This is just in December, like last month. So Barrow was sworn in to be the new president of the Gambia on Thursday. But he was sworn in in the country next door, Senegal. Weird. Why was 
Why was he sworn in in, in in Senegal? That'd be like Trump being sworn in in Canada to be the president of America. Why? Why? He did it because the current president, Yahya Jama, refused to step down. He declared a state of emergency, refuses to step down. So in Gambia, right now, there's no peaceful transfer of power. Again, I'm not making a story up. I'm not having to go, you know, uh, back in uh, uh, 1842, in, in, uh, like today, right, right now it's going on. So neighboring countries are preparing to go to war with the Gambian leader until he steps down. Now, the latest is today. He said he will step down and he says there's no need for blood to be shed. But saying I will step down is very different than I'm stepping down. Like, or like, here you go. Like that. So he hasn't stepped down yet. I'm sure he's just buying his time. So the place is a mess, right? People are fleeing the country. Thousands of tourists have already left. And people are fleeing the country because... If, 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 if they find out, if the government finds out that, that their family supported this challenger guy, they're dead. This is the normal. In the history of the world, this is the normal transfer of power process. Right? Someone wins an election, or if, even if there is an election, which is kind of a new concept too, and then the guy says no, and then there's a war or a threat of a war, and then someone is killed, and then it's over, or... Or, or tra- power is transferred or it's not transferred. Right? Like people usually die throughout these things. This is how countries normally work. But in America, we've never had anything but a peaceful transfer of power. That's why we take it so for granted. This makes us unique in human history. It makes us exceptional in human history. So when you reflect on what happened yesterday, and you may be happy because Trump won, you may be upset because Trump won, you might be a little nervous that Trump won. Just what happened yesterday, though, think about how, how grateful it is to be an American. Because people in the Gambia today who are fleeing the country, who have fled the country, they're looking at us right now and thinking, oh, why can't we be more like America in that regard? Now, if I may, that's this is the reason why I think it's so shameful that the, whatever, 60 congressmen didn't show up yesterday. It's shameful. First of all, it's selfish because it's putting attention on you, right? So you're being selfish, but also it's wildly short-sighted. Because again, people are literally today fleeing the country or who have fled the country because they, 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 they live in a country without a peaceful transfer of power. And these congressmen are members of a government and citizens in a country that has a peaceful transfer of power. And that's what yesterday was all about. It was about the transfer of power. Listen, Trump already won. All right. These protest, these, these congressmen protesting like, like, as if it's the day after the election. He already won. What happened yesterday was all ceremonial. So it's the ceremony and what that represents that they were really boycotting. And that is shameful. You know, the left always throws around the, uh, this line, the world is watching. I bet you hear it today at the, the Women's March, right? The world is watching. And it's usually in this, uh, oh, it's like this condescending, uh, you know, outrage at the way Trump is acting or whatever. Like, oh, can you believe this man? Oh, it's outrageous. You know, the, the world is watching. It's embarrassing. Something like that, right? Here in America, we got the same protesters. Uh, they got the, uh, the, the queer dance parties and, and cough-ins at Trump's restaurants. 
And then a bunch of, uh, you know, rioting yesterday. <laughs> I just want to say, you know what? Uh, the world's watching. So class up. And you know what, Congressman? The world is watching. The people of Gambia are watching. And you're so selfish and you take this so for granted that you boycott the, the inauguration. Pretty lame. How about a little awareness? How about a little awareness of how exceptional that process is in human history? That's all. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. So let's just hope the, the president of the Gambia or the former president steps down uh, lest more people die. one 888 Wow, I think we might do one last segment on Barack Obama. And that's it. And then we're done. <laughs> I plan on never doing another one again. Uh, he uses this term a lot in his speeches throughout the last eight years. And it's not, it's not, uh, he quotes, he quotes uh, someone and it's not the right quote. <laughs> it's not a complete quote. I'll tell you about that next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Thanks for being here. Um, this may be our last Barack Obama. I mean, gosh, I hope it is. Uh, so he would use a, a certain line in a bunch of his speeches. Uh, one of his favorite themes. There's two. Oh, by the way, I just uh, went to the NPR website. The first story, the very first story on the top is, let me scroll up. As world watches, Trump become president, protests, and some celebration. Uh, the world is watching, right? There it is. Perfect, exactly, exactly what I was saying. Um, so one of his uh, favorite themes is, it, it kind of comes in two forms. History is on our side, or, or history is not on their side, or something like that. And, and he'll use it against Republicans, with, with Republican tax policy, like history is not on their side. And he'll use it against ISIS. We're going to defeat ISIS because history's on our side. And it's this very vague, nothing statement. Like, what do you mean we'll defeat ISIS because history's on our side? It's not a, doesn't mean anything. But the more specific line that he uses more often is, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He likes that quote so much, he actually, in, in the Oval Office, uh, around the, the office, is that quote in the rug, right? So it's like, an, it's like weaved into the rug. Uh, that's, that's how much, it, that's the theme of his presidency. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he quotes Martin Luther King Jr. So progressives and conservati- conservatives have criticized Obama for this line. Progressives don't like it because it implies that they don't need to be activists for whatever you name it, immigration, because the moral arc of the universe will bend that way anyway. So they, they, it's as if they, they complain that 
that line means we don't need to march in the streets because no matter what we do, the arc of the moral universe is bending our direction anyway. Conservatives are against the line because bad ideas are not predestined to lose. You have to beat them, right? Like communism, Nazism, whatever is not predestined to lose. You have to beat it. You have to bend the arc of the universe towards good. So people go back and forth and bicker over it. But the reason that there's bickering over it is because it's not the full quote. (laughs) So, So we're bickering over something that doesn't even make any sense. Michael Ware was Obama's faith outreach coordinator in the 2012 election. And he's got a new book. It's called Reclaiming Hope. So he's had a lot of interaction with Barack Obama, obviously. And he says that that line is taken out of context and it's used inappropriately to bless a whole range of political solutions when that's not what the reverend Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he said it. By the way, it's amazing to me. Maybe we could talk about this later if we have a second, but how how, uh, the reverend part of MLK Jr., the Jesus part, the pastor part, the Christian part of MLK and his message has been completely erased from Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But I digress. Here's the full quote uh, from MLK. Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by Jesus' name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, he threw that quote in there because he was actually quoting uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Theodore Parker, who was a a pastor in the 1850s. So it wasn't even MLK who said that. Yes, he said it, but he was quoting someone else who said it before him. So MLK's point is that on earth, the good guys don't always win, right? Caesar is in power. Right? Evil may so shape events, he's saying, right? So, so the good guys aren't winning. Caesar is in power. And there's no guarantee that things are going to get better. But we have Jesus, who was on the cross at the time. Right? He was on the cross in a lowly position. Caesar was in the palace. Christ was on the cross. But in the end, time is determined by Jesus, not Caesar. We don't date the year based on Caesar. We date it based off of Jesus. The point is you can't take Jesus out of that quote. (laughs) That's the point of it. As Michael Ware says, it's now lost its meaning. It's politicized. And people apply it as if to say we passed tax reform and now it's about the moral arc of the universe. No, that's not (laughs) what the moral arc of the universe is about. All right, I want to play a clip here. This is of uh, Matthew Ware talking to uh, Matt Lewis on, on Matt Lewis's podcast. I want to play a few minutes of this, 1280. Is that, that that's a misinterpretation. If, you, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you know what's the line. I've read the end of the book. We win. Um, so we may go through some hard times. And in fact, we could regress as a civilization. Um, we could go through a dark ages. But in the end, we will ultimately... So, so Matt... Know, the, the story of hope and history is not 
about us progressing towards perfection. It's about God progressing and coming towards us. Uh, That is, the moral arc of the universe is about Jesus, God incarnate, coming to us, not us somehow working our way uh, to him, working our way to heaven. Um, And and that is is key. And if you don't agree with that, um, that's fine. But that's that's what Dr. King was talking about. So I, I, I lay it out in Reclaiming Hope in the same paragraph where he quotes, uh, I believe it was a, a Reverend Parker, um, a congregationalist minister. In the same paragraph that he quotes that, he talks about uh, how, how Caesar thought uh, he was in control, uh, but it was uh, Jesus Christ who, defi- who uh, divided uh, B.C. from A.D., um, talking about? Uh, we, we, we date history by, by Jesus, not by Caesar. Um, and he, 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 uh, he riffs on that, but it culminates, um, the, the, the whole message is about, is about faith. Um, it, not a sort of Kantian enlightenment sort of, uh, uh, uh things are all going to get better from here. But don't you think that president Obama benefited from and intentionally propagated the notion again, when your hope is in the right place, in a secure place, and you could hope for all kinds of things, and it's good for our politics to be uh, hopeful and about sort of um, uh, uh, be about uh, advancing justice and uh, uh, and securing freedom and all of these good things that are rooted in in old ideas. Um, but when they're um, when they're detached. Um, or when they sort of um, when they sort of uh, are compl- when hope is confined solely to the realm of politics, then you're not doing anybody any favors. Uh, that is a hope that will not last. That is a hope that will not bear the burdens of of our our best aspirations. Um, and and so uh, sort well, I of think on, it's actually on that count. Um, uh, we it's the responsibility of the citizen to accept that politicians are going to be politicians and they're focused on what they're focused on. Uh, a citizen needs to um, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about politics being important, but that uh, when we make politics, uh, quote unquote, the, the food of the mind, um, we've 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 sort of enlarged it to a sense. That it's not healthy and uh, it's very very easy to see politics as becoming food of the mind for oh, yeah. the average citizen. Let me stop there. So that, I mean, that, I that C.S. Lewis quote that he's referring to there, it's a classic C.S. Lewis quote. Um, he said, a sick society must think a lot about politics, just like a sick man must think a lot about his digestion. Because to ignore the subject may be fatal cowardice. But if either comes to regard it, either person comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, it either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else. Then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. C.S. Lewis is tough to understand. Let me translate. Um, politics is not the end. Politics is a means uh, to, to perfect the end, which is worshiping God. Similarly about digestion. If, if you're sick, you got to think about food and digesting properly. But that's not the end. You don't just eat food for eating food's sake. You digest food so that you can go live and do other things. Politics is not the end. Politics is a necessary evil, if you will, so that you can then go do other things. 
right? So only a sick person only thinks about politics. Yes, politics are important, but why are they important? They're important to then, therefore, C.S. Lewis and MLK said, go worship God and Jesus. Uh, That part of the moral arc of the universe is often left out of the quote. But that is the essence of the quote. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Slater Slater. So Chris uh, Saliza of the Washington Post. He was mocking Trump the other day because 0%, 0% of Donald Trump's cabinet picks have what? Hmm. 0% of Donald Trump's cabinet picks have what? What could it be? Zero percent of Donald Trump's cabinet picks have PhDs, and and the Washington Post criticizing Trump for that. I think that's awesome. <laughs> like, what's what's the problem? PhDs are nice. If you, if you want to get one, you knock yourself out. But in many fields, I would pick experience over credentials, and right? I would pick experience over. Education. Because while 0% of Donald Trump's picks have PhDs, 0% of Barack Obama's cabinet members were ever CEOs. So I choose experience. Meanwhile, 28% of Donald Trump's picks were CEOs. 28% were in the military. Only 47% have government experience. That's a good thing. Compared to Barack Obama and George W. Bush had 91% of his cabinet picks had government experience. Trump, 47%. The left doesn't understand these are good things. This is exactly why people voted for Trump. We don't want people there who have government experience. We want real world experience so we can apply real world principles. So 28% of his cabinet members are military men, meaning they got some pretty good foreign policy experience, I'd say. So who would you rather have, a PhD in military affairs or a four-star general who's been out in the field? And by the way, the four-star general, Mad Dog Mattis, is one of the most learned and scholarly military men in American history. So you get a, you get a twofer with Mad Dog Mattis. So would you rather have uh, some senator be a secretary of state who's been a politician? It's all that. Think about this. Would you rather have a senator be a secretary of state who got into politics and city council and then went up to state assembly, then state senator, uh, then congressman, then U.S. senator? So he's been in politics his whole life. Or would you rather have the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world who has his experience running a staff much larger and a budget way larger than even the U.S. State Department in Rex Tillerson? So Liza says that Trump's cabinet picks are radically unorthodox. Yeah, that's the point, champ. I want to talk about um, something that we've mentioned a lot last couple weeks here a couple months even but i think it's it's so important so this is from victor davis hansen uh, one of my favorite commentators he's a farmer and a professor at stanford he is the foremost historian in ancient military history and i love his analysis throughout this entire campaign because he never once was ever surprised by anything about donald trump meaning the rise of donald trump Because he knows his history and he knows that this has happened many, 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 many times before. And he wrote a brilliant article this weekend, the other weekend, uh, 
talking about the true divide in America, which we've talked about a bunch of times. It's not left versus right. It's not conservative versus liberal or whatever. It's city versus country. And it's always been city versus country. So I want to share some of the insight uh, that, that he has on this divide, on the city versus country differences. And you determine if, if this is the exact same thing that's going on today. So we're talking 2,500 years ago. And you decide if this is the exact same thing happening today. And I think once you do, once you see it, at least like I, I, I see it, it clicks for me and I hope I can make it click for you because now I look at all this happening and it just makes so much sense. You don't have to rack your brain about it anymore. This is the difference. This is the divide. So this is what uh, Victor Davis Hanson said. He said, city folk were laughed at in the comedies of Aristophanes as too impractical and too clever for their own good. While the unpolished, the, the country folk, while the country folk often displayed a more grounded sensibility. Okay, that's exactly what I was talking about with the CEOs versus PhDs. That's it. Barack Obama, city folk, all about the PhDs. Right? Chris Eliza's like, oh my gosh, why aren't there enough PhDs? There's not enough people in PhD with PhDs in Trump's cabinet. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, country folk, and we'll get to why Donald Trump, who himself is from the city, would ever be considered country folk. I'll get to that in a second. But country folk display a more grounded sensibility. CEOs. What's your actual experience? Because Rex Tillerson has run a company with 75,000 employees and the State Department happens to have 75,000 employees. He's been there. He knows how to do it. In classical literature, patriotism and civic militarism were also closely linked with farming and country life. In the 21st century, this is still true. The incubator of the U.S. officer corps is Red State America. Make America Great Again reverberated in the pro-military countryside because it emphasized an exceptionalism that's at odds with the left's embrace of global values. Remember after the election, we talked a lot about movies and, and how in literature and movies, the good guy is always from the country and the bad guy is always from the city. Always, every movie. It's never the other way around, right? Luke Skywalker, who's a farm boy, right? He had to go take on Darth Vader from the Death Star, right? The city. Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. Right? You name the movie. I would say even Rocky Balboa. I mean, yeah, he was from Philadelphia. It wasn't exactly the country, but he was the poor parts of Philadelphia, right? He was a poor, simple, stupid-sounding um, rube. Right? So good guys are from the country. This is just in literature, in literature everywhere. Good guys are always from the country, bad guys from the city. That's how it goes. Because that reflects reality. And military heroes tend to come from the country because patriotism and civic duty is an ingrained part of the country culture it always has been and it's still true today here in america i love this line this is so good theocritus i don't know who that is and virgil so these are again poets from thousands of years ago reflected that in the trade-offs imposed by transforming societies the earthiness the excuse me the earthiness lost by city dwellers was more grievous to their souls than the absence of sophistication was to the souls of simpler farmers and shepherds. Uh, that's a complicated sentence. So uh, what he's saying is if you, uh, if you are a country person and you move to the city, right? So as, as societies transform, so you're from the country 
and you move to the city. The, the connection with the earth that you lose is more grievous to your soul than the country boy who stays in the country and never gains the sophistication of the city. Does that make sense? So if you're from the country and you never gain the sophistication of the city, like that's not great because it's good to have some sophistication of the city. But if you are from the country and you move to the city, yeah, you may become way more sophisticated, but you lose way more by leaving than you ever gain. And remember, we talked about months ago, we talked about an Aesop fable, the country mouse and the city mouse from 2500 BC, which has the exact same lesson. Right? So if you're a country person, it's better to stay in the country than to move to the city. This is why in the movie Gladiator, and, and in real life, Cincinnatus and George Washington and so many great heroes after battle or after service, they just want to go back to their farm. Isn't that amazing? It's been, this has been the case for human history for thousands of years. All right, one more point. Victor Davis Hanson, he says, changes come more slowly to rural interior areas. This explains why people uh, today, progressive city folk, Look at the country folk is backwards. Right? Values are backwards. Principles are backwards. The way they look at the world is backwards. Changes come more slowly to rural interior areas. Given that the sea, the historical importer of strange people and weird ideas, is far away. Maritime Athens, right on the water, on, on the coast, was liberal, democratic, and cosmopolitan. Its antithesis, landlocked Sparta, was oligarchic, provincial, and tradition-bound. In the same way, rural upstate New York is not Manhattan and Provo is not Portland. Isn't that amazing? Like the same thing today. The same divide. There's a reason why it's the blues, the blue areas of the country are not only the cities, but the coasts. Why is that? Think about that. Why is the cities, or excuse me, why are the coastal areas blue? Why are they democratic? Why are they progressive? It's because it's on the coast, right? And that's where, that's the, that's where the ports are. That's the importer of strange people and weird ideas. <laughs> Interesting, right? But if you're more in inland, changes come more slowly. It's been the case for thousands of years. There was an article written in 400 BC. It was an anonymous. It was written by someone in Athens. And he described the hustle and bustle and, and the materialism in the port city of um, uh, Piraeus. And it's still one of the largest ports in Europe today. And he said, if you want to destroy the purity of rural and a conservative society, then you need to just go ahead and follow the model of the city of Piraeus. So what he was really saying is, rest of Greece, don't follow the model of the city of Piraeus. I want to take a break here. I want to make a, a conclusion next year. I, I alluded to this earlier. How could Donald Trump be the champion of the country folk, right? You got the city-country divide. How could Donald Trump the guy born in Queens, Manhattan real estate billionaire. How could he ever be the leader of the country folk? How could he be embraced by that? How's that possible? Donald Trump should be considered the ultimate city slicker. I'll tell you exactly how we did it. 1-88-900-3393. Tell you next. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
Snyder. Snyder's talking about the real divide in our country, city versus country, um, city folk, country folk. How did Donald Trump, though? I only got three minutes here. How did Donald Trump, city slicker himself, become the uh, the leader of the country folk? Uh, very simple. Language. How many times throughout the campaign did you hear people say uh, about Trump, he says it like it is? Something like that. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you, people in the country, excuse me, people in the city would, would look at Trump's speeches like yesterday when you hear Rachel Maddow talk about it or whatever and just see short words, repetition. Uh, he says the same thing a couple times in a row. Like it's very easy to mock if you're from the city. But why does it work? Why does it work for people in the country? Is it because people in the country are stupid? No. This is Victor Davis Hanson, again, an ancient military historian, so he understands this, this divide that's always existed. He said, rural speech serves, by its very brevity and directness, as an enhancement to action. So it's not that country folk are stupid. It's that we, we want to go. Like it's, it's, a, it's about getting stuff done. Verbosity and rhetoric associated with urbanites were always rural targets in classical literature, precisely because they were seen as ways to disguise reality so as to advance impractical or subversive political agendas. Thucydides, nearly 2,500 years before George Orwell, feared how, in times of strife, words changed their meaning, with the more polished and urbane subverting the truth by masking it in rhetoric that didn't reflect reality. But in the countryside, however... Crops either grow or wither. Trees either yield or remain barren. Rain either arrives or it's scarce. Words can't change these facts upon which living even one more day often depends. Trump's brevity speaks to country folk, especially coming out of an era where, uh, with Obama where, where verbosity was seen as a virtue where it was important to change your words so you don't hurt people's feelings, right? Can't use gender pronouns anymore. You can't say poor person or healthy or freshman or homeless. You can't even say American. Instead, it's uh, instead of poor, it's person who lacks the advantage of others. Or <laughs> it's like, see, see what I mean? Like you're trying to be subversive. Like, what are you trying to hide? What do you mean person who lacks the advantage of others? Oh, you mean they don't have a lot of money? You can't say mothering or fathering because all oh, that uh, gender stereotypes, it's about, uh, it's nurturing, you're nurturing. You can't say healthy, instead it's non-disabled individual. Right, so enough of this nonsense. The American people were yearning for someone to cut through the crap. So last quote here from Hanson, he said, to the rural mind, verbal gymnastics reveals dishonest politicians, biased journalists, and conniving bureaucrats who must hide what they really do and who they really are. So Trump was able to, to represent country folk and country folk were able to gravitate towards him because of his language, because of the way he spoke. Because we look at people, uh, politicians and bureaucrats and, and media and the way they use their language and we know they're hiding something. We can give you a million examples of that. Right? The way they word and all the rest. You're like, what are you trying? What are you, what are you, what are you really doing here? And that distrust has just reached such an apex that Trump comes in and just says, boom. Speaks quick, short, to the point. Powerfully. And the left looks at that as militant. Rachel Maddow yesterday said that this speech was militant. 
And people in the country look at that as just to the point. That's the difference. And it's always been there. Now, here's the bottom line. And I should end this and I should start this every time we talk about this divide. We need everyone. Right? We need country folk. We need city folk in every way. Economically, the, the city folk need the, the miners to mine the granite for their countertops and the, the lumberjacks to cut the wood for their mansion. And country folk need capital to buy farming equipment and people to sell their food to. So we need both economically and socially we do as well. We need people to push the boundaries of traditional values and we need people to bring us back to those values. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.